if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, the very first book in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 18. If you're using a pew Bible, you will find it on page 1046. We've been working through this section in Matthew's Gospel, and we've come to another very significant chapter in the life and ministry of Christ and the teaching that he's giving to his disciples and to us. We're going to begin reading in verse number 5 of Matthew chapter 18, and I want to speak for a few minutes this morning on this subject, tear it out and throw it away. Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 5. And this is what the Word of God says. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. We all have tools that we use to help us accomplish our work and our daily tasks, whether it's in our profession or managing our home or in our studies, whatever it may be, we all have certain tools that we go to that are our favorite that we use to help us accomplish our goals. And one of my favorites is this notebook like I'm using this morning. It is a notebook that has little discs inside of it. And the genius of it is you don't have to press open prongs to get your pages out. If you make a mistake, you just pull on the page and it comes right out. If you want to move something around, you just pull it out and move it around. And the reason why I love notebooks like this so much is because if you don't know me that well, I'm a perfectionist. And those notebooks that have the sewn-in pages inside of them that you cannot remove do not work for me. Because if I make a mistake, if my fountain pen leaks ink and messes up the page, I can't use the notebook anymore. It becomes a distraction. And so the genius of this notebook is when I make a mistake on the page, I can just tear it out, and throw it away. It's similar to the statement that Jesus made in this passage of Scripture. But in the context of his teaching, he's not talking about something being written down on a piece of paper. He's talking about sin in the life of his children. 
To properly understand this passage of Scripture, you must keep it in its broader context, which begins in verse 1 of chapter 18 with the question that the disciples posed to Jesus, Lord, who is the greatest in the kingdom? And in response to their question, Jesus, as we learned last week, summoned a little child and brought him into the midst of the disciples and sat that little child on his lap and brought him close and used him as an illustration for how one must enter the kingdom of heaven. And now, with the picture and the illustration of that child in mind, Jesus expands his teaching to the subject of mutual caring among his children. And he does it, if you read the text carefully with me this morning, with severe warnings and a pronouncement of judgment. Jesus is so concerned about his children hurting themselves and hurting others that he says that if there is anything in your life, if there is anything in my life that would cause someone else to stumble... We should tear it out, and we should throw it away. Now look with me at the text, and let's notice, first of all, the welcome in verse number 5. Jesus says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. As we learned last week in verses 1 through 4, Jesus called his disciples to humility. And now here in verse number 5, he gives them a way to practice and to live out that humility. Now listen carefully to me. There are all kinds of crazy interpretations about these verses that we're looking at today. Some interpret these verses to mean that we should not cause children to sin and that because Jesus loved children, we should love children too. And while those principles are good and right and true, it's not how these verses should be interpreted. Remember verses 3 and 4. Jesus used a little child, probably a toddler, to illustrate how someone becomes a child in his kingdom, how someone becomes one of his followers. And then he equated the humility of a true believer with children in his kingdom, making them sons and daughters of the Father in heaven. And so when Jesus uses the phrase child and little one, like he does in verse 5 and following in the context of this chapter, he is not talking about physical, literal children. He is talking about believers. He is talking about those who have humbled themselves like a little child and entered his heavenly kingdom. And if you don't get this interpretation right, you will not get the meaning of the whole passage correct. So Jesus, in verse number 5, is not equating himself with literal physical children. Jesus is equating himself with Christians. And Jesus makes it abundantly clear that his disciples, his children are to be received and welcomed in his name because they bear his name and they belong to him. Do you see that? Whoever receives 
one such child, one such believer in my name receives me. Now you'll notice in verse number five, he uses the word receives twice. It means to deliberately and readily take something or someone to oneself. The term was often used of welcoming a guest of honor and meeting their needs and lavishing them with special attention and kindness. And Jesus' primary point here in verse number five is that the way a person, whomever it may be, notice how the verse begins, whether they're a believer or an unbeliever, the way a person treats Christians is the way that person treats Christ. How you treat Christians, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, is how you treat Christ. And so, when anyone welcomes with an open heart a Christian as an honest guest and as a friend, they are welcoming Christ as a guest and a friend. And when anyone treats any Christian with tenderness and kindness, they are treating Christ with tenderness and with kindness. To receive a childlike believer in Christ's name, Jesus says, is to receive Christ himself. It is impossible to separate Christ from his people. Whatever affects his people affects him. Now this principle that Jesus is teaching here in verse number five is an echo of a similar principle that Jesus taught his disciples in Matthew chapter 10 when he commissioned them and sent them out to begin their ministries. And in Matthew chapter 10 in verse number 40, Listen carefully to what Jesus says about this idea of reception. He says, whoever receives you, the disciples, receives me, Christ. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me, the Father. And so, to receive a Christian in Christ's name is to receive Christ. And in response to their question in verse number one of who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus is teaching the disciples that they must not only humble themselves to enter the kingdom of heaven, that they must also welcome all others who humble themselves and become children of God's kingdom. It is significant, friends, that Jesus is addressing the twelve. These are the future leaders of his church. And he is teaching them that they must pay attention how they lead, how they care for, how they welcome God's children in his kingdom, lest they turn into pastoral tyrants and reject and oppose and hurt those who belong to Jesus Christ and his church. Whoever receives one of these little children receives Christ. 
Here's the principle. True greatness in the kingdom of heaven does not receive others based on their social or economic standing. They don't receive others based on the color of their skin. They don't receive others based on the clothes they wear. They don't use any other human matrix to receive people who belong to Christ's kingdom. They receive people who belong to Christ's kingdom in love. They care for them because they recognize that these people belong to Christ. Christ shed his blood for them. And so, true believers welcome them. True greatness in the kingdom of heaven is measured by how well those who often experience rejection from the world find reception in the church. That is true greatness in God's kingdom. James, the half-brother of the Lord Jesus, recognized the importance of this principle and the danger of not practicing this principle. And in James chapter 2, verses 1 to 13, he spends 13 verses admonishing and instructing the church in their sin of partiality. And you can go back and read it on your own, but I'll give you the summary of it this morning. The summary is simply this. They were letting people who were prominent in the community have the best places in the worship service. And they were rejecting the marginalized and the outcast and pushing them off, if you will, into a corner. And James says that it was sin. That they were not truly welcoming those who belonged to Christ. And friends, the church above all other places in the world should be a place where the children of God find love and warmth and care and welcome. Believers are to receive one another with tenderness and care and kindness and love, opening up their hearts and welcoming one another because every single time they do that, they are welcoming Jesus Christ himself. And those who refuse to welcome Christ's disciples refuse to welcome Christ. If you're struggling with this principle in this verse this morning, ask yourself this question. It's a simple one. How did Christ receive you? You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were alienated from God. You were separated from him in his kingdom. You had no family. The devil was your father. And Christ, who's rich in love and mercy and grace, who's abounding in kindness, died for you. The Holy Spirit called you to God's Son. And you were received and welcomed. And you who were outcast were adopted. You who had no family now have a family in the kingdom of God. You whom your father was the devil now have the heavenly father as your father. And the Lord Jesus Christ as your brother. That is how you were welcomed by Christ. And if Christ welcomed you like that, how could you not welcome others 
in the same way. This verse begs us to ask how the posture of our heart is towards others. Is the posture of our heart warm? Is it welcoming? Do you find yourself trying to meet people that you don't know? Do you find yourself looking for people who may be guests or who may be visiting and you try to welcome them and make them feel comfortable either before or after the service? Do you look when you come to church for the lonely and the hurting so you can welcome them and serve them? Do you pray with the widow who is struggling? Do you pray with the family who is brokenhearted over an issue that they're struggling with in their lives? Do you take time to extend grace and mercy and love and kindness? Or is the posture of your heart hard and cold? Do you find yourself saying things like this? I don't even recognize or know my church anymore. It's been hijacked and taken over. I don't even know it. Do you find yourself saying, someone is always sitting in my seat. I'm frustrated every time I come into the room. Do you find yourself saying and thinking things like this? I wish it would be a little quieter around here. I wish it would be a little cleaner around here. These are important questions to ask. Do you enter the church and exit the church by never speaking to anyone around you? By just staying in your own bubble and in your own world? Oh, friends, can you not see that verse number five has practical application in the life of the church and in your life? That if, if you refuse to welcome, if you refuse to show kindness, if you refuse to show love, you are rejecting Christ. Do you know what Jesus would say you need to do? Tear it out and throw it away. Well, we not only see the welcome in verse number six, we see the warning. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and for him to be drowned in the depths of the sea. And again, like verse number five, when Jesus speaks in verse number six of one of these little ones who believe in me, he has in mind the children that he has been speaking of in verses three, four, and five, true believers who belong to the kingdom of heaven. And in this verse, Jesus is issuing a warning against placing harmful obstacles in the path of his followers that would cause them to sin. And keeping verse number six in the overall context of the chapter, it is significant to note that when people like the disciples try to become great, they often trample on those around them and cause others to stumble on their way to the top. You'll notice in verse number six, Jesus uses the phrase, causes them to sin. It's where we get our word scandal or to scandalize. It literally means to stumble or cause someone to fall. And in verse number six, Jesus is warning of enticing or trapping or influencing a believer in any way that leads him or her into sin, or that in any way makes it easier for another believer to sin. 
And because verse number six is a continuation of the thought of verse number five, it means that a person who is responsible for causing another Christian to sin commits an offense not only against that Christian, but they commit an offense against Christ himself. Because Christ can never be separated from his people. And so if you're following along carefully in verse number six, you probably have this question. How can we cause other people to sin? It's a great question. Let me give you a few ideas. We can cause others to sin directly. Eve is the first example of this. Eve was tempted by Satan, directly responded to Satan, and then she influenced Adam to follow in her temptation. When we come to the book of Exodus, we find Aaron, the first high priest of Israel, directly leading the whole nation of Israel into sin by making and worshiping golden calves while Moses was on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments from God. We can cause people to directly sin by our influence. Secondly, we can cause people to sin indirectly. The book of Revelation mentions two churches, the church at Pergamum and the church at Thyatira, that Jesus issued strong warnings and condemnation to because both of those churches tolerated false teaching and evil practices in their midst. And anyone, whether a Christian or a church, that tolerates false practices and evil and false teaching, by nature of their silence, are indirectly causing and leading others to sin. A third way we can cause others to sin is through a sinful example. Without even saying a word, believers can be led into sinful attitudes and practices simply by following the bad example of other Christians around them. Paul was so concerned about this that when he wrote instructions to his young protege in the ministry, Timothy, and he was teaching Timothy how to deal with the false teaching that was surrounding the church and how to lead the church, he gave Timothy this clear admonishment in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 12. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. And what Paul instructed Timothy is true for you and me. Our example of love, our example of faith, our example of purity, our example of speech can either hinder or help those around us. And friends, let's just be clear. The casualty list by a sinful example is long and far-reaching. Even in our own community over the past years, How many front page articles in the newsletter have we seen about influential spiritual leaders causing devastation in people's lives because they weren't the right kind of example? And I'll be selfish for a moment and parenthetically insert here. This is why you should pray on a regular basis for your pastor and the other leaders of the church that we would be this kind of example to you and to your children and to your families. An example of faith and love and conduct and purity and speech. There's a fourth way we cause others to sin. 
by carelessly using our liberty in Christ. Paul writes great truth about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9, and he warns those who are free in Christ to be careful how they use their freedom so that they don't become a stumbling block for those who may be struggling with the kind of activity that they feel free to engage in in Christ. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9, this is what he says to them. Take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block for the weak. And he will go on to tell them, even though you're, you have a right and even though you're free in Christ, you should maybe not engage in that activity so you don't cause others to stumble. A fifth and final way we cause others to stumble is because we fail to disciple them and teach them the truth and model the truth before their eyes. Now, I want you to look carefully at the text in verse number six. I want you to see that what I'm about to say to you is coming straight from the pages of Scripture, from the very words of Jesus himself. In the most vivid and sobering language, Jesus indicates the seriousness of causing one of his little ones, one of his children, to sin And he declares that a person who does such a thing would be better off dying a terrible death. He says it would be better for them if a great millstone was tied around their neck and they were thrown into the depths of the sea for them to cause another believer to sin. Those are Jesus' words, not mine. That's how seriously Jesus takes sin. And when he refers to a great millstone, he's referring to a huge stone wheel that was used in the process of grinding grain. And children, if you have the sermon notes page, there's a picture of a millstone right there on it. You can show it to your parents so they'll understand what it looks like. These stone wheels, some say, often weighed hundreds of pounds. They were attached to a horizontal bar that was then connected to the harness of a donkey. And as the animal walked around in a circle, that wheel would go around a platform and it would grind and crush the grain. In my research, I found this week that some stated that in Jesus' day, sometimes the Romans used these millstones in executions. That they would take a millstone and they would tie it around the criminal's neck and they would throw the criminal with the millstone into the depths of the sea as a punishment for their crime. And would you look at what the text says? Jesus says it would be better for you to die like that than to cause someone else to sin. So what I would say to us all this morning by way of application, if you think your little sins don't affect you, don't affect those around you, don't have an impact on Christ's church, Jesus says you're mistaken. That every sin has an impact on you and on those around you and on his church. And Jesus makes it clear by way of application in this verse that our holiness towards God is a matter of life and it's a matter of death. It's a matter of heaven and it is a matter of hell for both us and for those around us. 
And if that were not enough, do you realize this morning, friends, that because verse 6 continues the thought of verse 5, that when you cause others to stumble, it's really an attack on Christ himself. Because he cannot be separated from his people. And by way of implication, Jesus is teaching us that instead of influencing others to sin, we should influence others to grow in righteousness. Instead of misusing liberty for our own freedom and our own satisfaction, we should be willing to restrict our liberty for the good of others around us. Instead of setting an evil example, we should set a holy example. Instead of pro- provoking others, we should stir one another on to love and do good works. Jesus is teaching us that how we live our lives and the direction we take our lives matters. We're all leaving wheel tracks for others to follow. Now, if you've been following along carefully the saga that is the hill out here beside the church and the struggle to repair it properly you realize that the last time the road caved in, that they barricaded all around it in such a way that to get past the barricade, you had to drive into the yard of the church on the side. And if you would go out there right now this morning and you would look at the side of the yard, right out here by the church, you would find that there, instead of grass, there is now dirt. And you would find that there is a track. And you would find that there is a rut. And all it took was for the first car to drive through the yard to give every car behind the first car permission to drive through the yard. And car after car and truck after truck has driven through the yard of the church and they've left their wheel tracks and their wheel tracks have created a rut. So now when a car comes down the hill, they naturally want to gravitate to the rut. Do you see my point? That is exactly what unchecked sin does in our lives you think it's only affecting you and you listen you have no idea how much the little feet and the little hands and the little eyes that are living in your house watching you are being affected by what you're doing you have no idea it doesn't just affect you it affects everybody around you and effect it affects those who are coming behind you They're going to fall into your rut. They're going to follow your tracks. Well, we see the welcome. We see the warning in verse number seven. I hate to tell you this. It gets worse. It's the woe. And you can tell by the language. See, right? We started with welcome. Now we're at warning. Now we're at woe. So you know it's getting harder. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Jesus uses even stronger language in verse number 7 to deal with the dangers of temptation. And look carefully at the verse. He uses one word twice in the verse. 
the word woe. It is an exclamation of judgment. It is a word of cursing in condemnation. It is used to describe the terrible end of a person who is judged by God for their sins. And notice carefully in verse number 7 that the first woe is given to the world for temptations to sin. The world that he's referring to is this fallen world that you and I live in that is under the curse of God for sin. And Jesus is teaching us that this world that we live in is deserving of woe for its wholehearted devotion to sin and for its rebellion against God. And Edgar read the passage to us this morning to begin the service in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. John tells us how the world tempts us to sin. He says, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world tempts us to sin, Jesus says. In Matthew chapter 24 and verse 11, Jesus says that the false prophets of the world in the end times will try to entice disciples away from Jesus, to denounce their faith and to turn away. In that same chapter, he says that the world will oppress and persecute the church and will try to lead the church, to lead believers in the church, to reject God and to reject their brothers and sisters in Christ and turn on them. Friends, the world is under the curse of God because of sin and because of this moral and spiritual stumbling box it puts in the paths of the children of God. Do you see it in the text in verse 7? The world is given a woe because of all of its temptations to sin, all of its traps, all of its baits, all of its hooks. Jesus is saying this world that we live in is full of enticements. It's full of traps. It's full of temptations to sin. And as long as we live in this world, there will be no end to the temptations to sin. But now notice carefully the text. And see if you think it's as odd as I thought it was when I noticed it in my study this week. Jesus says, in the very next phrase, that it's necessary for temptation to come. Why would he say that? He's just warned us about causing others to stumble. And now he's telling us in verse number 7 that it's necessary for temptations to come. Why in the world would he say that? Ah, you'll have to stay with the text to get the answer because it's in there. Let me show you. The second object of woe in this verse is to the one by whom the temptations come. And even though the world is full of temptations to sin, and even though that it is necessary for these temptations to come, notice Jesus does not remove individual responsibility. That the person through whom these temptations come out of the world will be judged justly and severely for their enticement to cause other people to sin. Now, are you thoroughly confused? Let me clear it up. Jesus used the same language when he described the betrayal of Judas in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 24. He says, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. 
Jesus issues a woe to Judas and says, woe to him. It'd be better if Judas hadn't ever been born. And yet, God in his sovereign saving purposes did not remove Judas's responsibility of his betrayal to Christ, but he used his betrayal of Christ to complete God's sovereign saving purpose through his son to the world. And that's the same thing that is happening in this text. Just as Judas's betrayal of Jesus was used by God for his saving purposes, so too are the temptations that come from the world used by God for his saving purposes. You say, I, I'm still struggling. Well, listen to Romans chapter 8, verses 20 to 23. I think it'll help you. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Did you catch it? Paul is saying that the world is marred by the curse of sin, and it was God's purpose that God himself subjected the world to futility. That it was God's plan that the world would be like this and that it would be full of temptations and that it would be a struggle to live in this world. And the reason he did that, Paul says in verse number 20, is so that through his glory and through his saving purposes, this sinful creation itself will be set free just like those who've been saved by Jesus Christ have been set free. And it'll all be for the glory of God. And he goes on in verse 22 and he says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our body. So let me try to illustrate it like this. God cursed the world because of sin. Now we're living in a world that is sin-cursed and it is full of temptations and it is full of trials and it is full of struggles. And it's all for God's purpose so that he will redeem this world with a new heaven and a new earth and it will all be done for his glory. And it will all be back like it was originally created in the book of Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 before sin entered it. But right now, this world is groaning under the weight of sin and under the weight of temptation. Creation is crying out. It is longing for its redemption like the children of God have experienced. And we, God's children, are living in this sin-cursed world full of temptations, full of struggles, full of trials. And every time we're faced with temptation and struggle and trial, we groan, we moan, we cry out along with creation. We long for the day that we'll live in a new heaven and a new earth, all for God's glory. And all of this is a part of his saving purpose. He's using it all for his glory and for our good but until that day the point that Jesus is making is that there is a need for us to be concerned about one another's holiness 
Woe to the one through whom these temptations come. I am to be burdened about your holiness. I am to be burdened about your walk with God. You are to be burdened about my holiness. You are to be burdened about my walk with God. So here's the simple application, friends. Who's helping you fight sin? Who's helping you? Pastor, do you know how old I am? All these things you're referring to today, they, they don't apply to me. Does your mind still work? You don't have to use your hands. You don't have to use your feet. You don't have to use your eyes or your ear to sin. You can sin with your mind. You can sin with the thoughts of your heart. You may fail physically, but that doesn't mean your fight with sin is over, friends. You will fight sin until the day you are in glory. So I say again, who's helping you fight sin? Who's, who's looking out for your soul? That's Jesus' point. We need one another. Finally, verses 8 and 9, we see the wisdom. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. We not only need to be concerned about others' holiness, verse 7, we need to be concerned about our own holiness, verses 8 and 9. We must not only protect others from sin, verse 7, we must guard ourselves from sin and temptation, verses 8 and 9. After all, those who cause others to stumble begin by stumbling themselves. And if we let stumbling blocks into our life go unchecked, we will fall into the sin of verse 7. I would illustrate it for you this way this morning. If I, as your pastor, as your shepherd, do not take seriously the admonitions of these verses that I am teaching you and proclaiming you today, I could affect this whole room. Have you ever seen dominoes stacked up? And all it takes is for the first one to fall, and all the rest will follow. All it would take is for me to fall, and it would cause unimaginable devastation to my family and to every family represented in this room and to every family that's a part of this church that's not in this room into the city of Wheeling. And I could, in one act, undo almost 18 years of faithfulness and affect everyone. That's how serious verses 8 and 9 are. Friends, if you don't take anything else away from what I've said today, I know it's a hard passage. I know it's a hard sermon. I know it's a lot of teaching, but it's important. I want you to understand the text 
and get it right. And if you don't take anything else away, please take this away. The consequences to sin are never personal and they're never private. They go far beyond you. Far beyond you. And Jesus couldn't be any clearer in his warning concerning our personal sin, saying if a body part like our hand, our foot, or our eye causes us to sin, we should cut it off, we should tear it out, and we should throw it away. Now, some of you are saying, Pastor, is he serious? Really cut it out, tear it off, throw it away? No. Hyperbole. No. He's not telling you to cut off body parts today. Because... Listen, friends, you could cut off these body parts that he mentions in this passage and still sin because the root of sin is not in your hand. It's not in your foot. It's not in your eye. It's not in your mind. It's in your heart. And your heart and your sinful desires are telling your hands what to do. They're telling your feet what to do. They're telling your eyes what to do. Sin is an issue of the heart. Jesus' point is that instead of flirting with sin, you should destroy it. That if there's something in your life destroying your soul and leading you to sin, you should get rid of it no matter how much it costs and no matter what it takes. Jesus' point is that there is nothing worth keeping in your life if it causes you to sin and stumble and if it causes other people to sin and stumble. The Apostle Paul knew this principle clearly. That's why he said in 1 Corinthians 9, 27, I discipline my body and I keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself would be disqualified. It's a matter of the heart. The real answer is not cutting off body parts. The real answer is a genuine love for God, for his word, for the things of his kingdom, and that love transforming your mind and your heart so you want to obey him, you want to follow him, you want to serve him. Now look at the text carefully. Jesus says that it would be better to suffer earthly, temporal, physical pain by cutting off a hand or a foot or tearing out an eye than it would be to suffer eternal, spiritual, physical pain in hell. Do you see it? He introduces the doctrine of hell. He says that it would be better for you to cut those things out, to tear those things out of your life, than to be thrown into the eternal fire and to be thrown into the hell of fire. Mark says in Mark chapter 9 and verse 48 that the fire that Jesus is referring to in hell is never quenched. I did a little research on this thought that Jesus is giving here in these verses. And one scholar said that Jesus is referring to the trash dump that was outside of the city in his day. And that's where they often took dead bodies and the fire was never quenched and the smoke never went out of that trash dump because there was a constant deposit of bodies. It was always burning. And that's the picture of hell that Jesus is giving. It would be better for you to cut these things off and to tear them out of your life than to burn 
in hell forever. That's how seriously Jesus takes sin. So let me wrap it all up with these few thoughts. Does your hand cause you to sin? Do you raise it in anger? Do you use it to strike and intimidate? Do you use it to grasp for things that don't belong to you? Do you use your hand to touch what you have no business touching? Do you use it to consume things that you shouldn't be consuming? Does it cause you to sin? How about your foot? Does it cause you to sin? Do your feet take you places where you shouldn't go? Do they take you in the opposite direction of serving God and serving the people of God and meeting the needs of others when you have the ability to make a difference with what God has given you? How about your eye? Does it cause you to sin? Do you constantly look to consume instead of being content? Do you watch movies and shows that lead you to sin or to want to sin? Do you consume pornography? What about soft pornography? The magazines, the catalogs that are delivered to your home that greet you at the store checkout aisles. Do you consume those? Do you look in directions that you have no business looking? Does your eye cause you to sin? What you do privately with your hand, what you do privately with your foot, what you do privately with your eye has the potential to affect, affect others. How we see affects how others see. What we touch affects what others touch. Where we go affects where others go. We are not an island to ourselves. And what about this whole idea of temptation? What do we do with that? We look to Christ. The Bible says that Christ was tempted in every way as you and I are, and yet without sin. Because he was tempted in every way as you and I are, and yet without sin, he and he alone is the only one who could go to the cross and die for your sin. Because you've been tempted every way like Christ has, but the difference is you've sinned. You've given in to the temptation. Only Christ could pay that price on the cross for your sin and mine and for the sins of the whole world. And the Bible says that after he paid the price, he was put in a tomb and he rose from the grave and he ascended to heaven. Do you know what he's doing this very moment this morning, friends? He is sitting at the throne of grace and he's praying and interceding for you in your struggle for temptation. And so you look to Christ, the one who is victorious over all temptation. And as Paul says, when you look to him, you find the way of escape in your temptation. Christ is your victory over sin and temptation. You say, well, pastor, what about those in the room 
who've watched other religious people and other Christians and others who have professed to be Christians, and they've seen crooked wheel tracks like you were talking about, and it's caused harm to them, and they just struggle to believe if everything that you've been talking about is real and true. The first thing I would say is that's not representative of who Christ is. You look to Christ, friends. Christ doesn't lead anyone to stumble. Christ is perfect and holy and righteous and true. And Christ has lavished his grace and his mercy and his love upon you. That if you would look to him and his example, you'd find straight wheel tracks. You would find acceptance. You would find adoption. You would find a home and a family. Look to Christ. This passage is a call to battle for Christians. It is a call in the culture of the 21st century that is running wild and rampant and crazy with every thought imaginable for Christians to wake up from their slumber and their complacency. It is a call to realize that your personal holiness and my personal holiness matter to God. That your personal holiness and my personal holiness matter to this church. That your personal holiness and my personal holiness matter to our families. That your personal holiness and my personal holiness matter to the unbelievers who are around us. John Owen, the great Puritan, said it best, Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And finally, I would say this morning, these words, cut it off, tear it out, throw it away. Cut off greed, cut off grasping for power, cut off intimidation and brute force, cut off paths that lead to evil and destruction, cut off the subscriptions, cut off the internet, throw away the computer, throw away the cell phone, throw away the television, throw away the books, tear the stumbling blocks out of your life and throw them away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to be thrown into the eternal fire of hell with your internet, your cell phone, your computer, your books, your TV, your power, your money, your greed. Cut it out. Tear it off. Throw it away. And look to Christ. He is true riches. Let's pray.